Hello and welcome to On War, the podcast. This week, Austin and I jump to the other side of the theoretical pond and introduce the critical approaches to international relations and security studies. What does it mean to be critical? What does this approach entail? And who critiques the critics? Well, it's been a slight delay. Uh, I've been moving house and sorting things out, as we talked about last week, and there's been a few things that come up in, in along the road. So a short admin note before we get started. This will be sort of, I guess, the last episode of season two, which seems a bit strange. But basically what's going to be happening is we're going to be taking a three or four week break uh, while Austin's traveling and while I start my first couple of weeks of my PhD. And we'll be back um, mid-March. So I guess to let everyone know, that's why this scheduling's been a little bit weird for this episode and why we're going to take a, we'll have to take a short break in the middle of this just to get going. But it's strange because, of course, we're going to be continuing today's topic with next episode. So it's not really a season break, but I guess it's it's just one of those things. Issues come up. I mean, you're not complaining. You're off on holiday, aren't you? Yeah, I'm off to Finland of all places. So up into the exact opposite of the Australian climate, uh, which will, of course, be lots of fun. Oh, yeah. You, you go all the way up north, practically to the Arctic Circle, while we hit the hottest part of our summer. <laughs> I'm almost jealous. Yes. One would almost think I planned it that way. That would be being suspicious, though. But on with the episode. Today's episode, we're looking at quite a broad, at one and the same, it's quite a a sort of narrow area of international relations and security studies. But on the other hand, it encompasses of quite a range of ideas. And I guess one of the things we're talking about before we started this episode is that a lot of this stuff is going to sound vaguely familiar. What we're talking about today is uh, the critical school of both security studies and international relations. And this is sort of, even though we go off in different directions quite a lot, and even though uh, we present a bunch of ideas in our own research, and even when we're talking on this podcast, the critical school is, is really uh, the home discipline for Austin and I. It was it was the, um, the school through which we did our um, undergraduate studies and influenced a lot of our early research. And so there's a lot of ideas encompassed in this quite wide-ranging definition that we come back to again and again. And even when we push back on, we push back on from that position of comfort, from that from that position of, of knowing what it is we've, we're talking about, what we've done before. I think it's important to recognize, though, at that point, when we say we come from this discipline, um, it's just the one that Alice and I really engaged with at undergraduate level. Um, we, of course, try our best, as, as academics do, to avoid becoming overly attached to a particular discipline. And, I mean, those who listened to our last episode uh, would know that there are elements of uh, the conventional approaches that we both disagree with, um, but also elements that we incorporate alongside some of this critical approach uh, into a, our own interpretations. We, The other way of perhaps approaching this is more cynically is that we're contrarian fence-sitters. And that never makes anybody happy. But I think that's a better approach, don't you? To, to draw the best from both worlds? Well, it makes us happy. So, you know, you're never going to make everyone in academia happy. Uh, so your best bet is just to find the theory, or in our case, uh, varying collections of theory. Um, Alsh and I differentiate on where exactly we draw the lines in certain uh, theoretical approaches. Um, you find the one you're comfortable with and then go with that because no one's ever going to be in a situation where all academics are happy with them. If you disbelieve me, I uh, suggest you go to a conference and listen to the Q&A section at the end. Oh, that's that's great fun. It's better than a boxing match. Yeah, as long as you're not the one up 
receiving the punches. It's fantastic. Bit of schadenfreude. So I guess the first thing we're going to start is, um, what exactly is the critical school? And even calling it the critical school is a bit of a misnomer, because really it encompasses a whole bunch of things that you might call alternative or non-traditional um, security studies or international relations studies. Uh, it encompasses everything from uh, feminist perspectives on international relations and security, uh, post-colonial perspectives, generic perspectives that are critical of the status quo, uh, post-structuralist perspectives. There's a whole range of things you could lump into this. Human security, food and water security theorists often find themselves in critical school by default because they're not traditionalists, so therefore they must be the other guy. And that's actually one of the main criticisms that the traditionalist schools have against the New Age approaches to IR and security studies particularly, is that critical school has simply come to encompass everything that isn't the traditionalist or structuralist approach. Um, So you get this sort of uh, domain creep occurring where everything new, every new theory is sort of lumped into the critical school because that's the departure point for a lot of these theories. Yeah. That being said, there are some sub-schools or, or some schools that you might call call the core, the, the theoretical origins of critical um, security and international relations. And much like our earlier discussions about uh, liberal war theory, they have an origin in sort of the, the early 80s through to the 90s, the, the climax of the Cold War and then its sudden and dramatic end, and looking at this world order that's been created and, and where do we go from here. So some of the precursors, I guess... Um, one of the most seminal texts is uh, by Robert Cox. The, pro- the primary kind of the seminal text I'm referring to here is Robert Cox's Social Forces, States and World Orders Beyond International Relations Theory, which was published in the Millennium Journal of International Studies in 1981. Um, and he takes a very um, post-structuralist approach where he, among other things, outlines the idea that any theory is created uh, not just for a purpose, uh, that is to uncover an idea or to explore a specific situation, but it's also created for someone. Theory is always for someone and for some purpose. Yeah, thanks, Austin. Yeah. And so what he's saying there is that the easiest example is the ideas of very traditional neorealist approaches by the Rand Corporation to nuclear warfare. Uh, the, The theory is for the government of the United States for the purpose of legitimating the production stockpiling of nuclear weapons, the maintenance of the MAD strategy. It's not to say that it's necessarily bad because of that, but that there is an interest that is being served. And understanding the interests that serve and inform different theories is key to understanding why the theories occur for themselves. Rather than assuming that the theory is the baseline, like first there is nothing and then we have a theory. Cox wanted to go much deeper than that. And so that's one of the seminal ideas we have that sort of underpins all of this. And how he goes deeper, as Alistair points out, is he proposes that there's two types of theory, or two types of academic, really. Those that come up with a theory to solve a particular problem. Um, and he says that those problem-solving theories are more about maintaining the, the world order. So as Alistair points out, the MAD strategy in the RAND Corporation is sort of the quintessential example of problem-solving theory and problem-solving theorists. And the second school is sort of the where the name comes from for the critical school, which is your critical theory, um, which Cox says is based on this historical materialist approach where everything is up for grabs and you have to question why we think certain things are the way they are 
and we have to question the motivations behind existing theory, as opposed to simply taking them as an objective standard. So while all of this is going on, and while Cox is talking about these issues in very broad terms, we still don't actually have critical theory yet. Um, that term actually really arises, in fact, first arises um, in a publication, in a lecture actually given by Ken Booth in 1991 called uh, Security and Emancipation. This is the official foundational speech and then later publication for the critical school, and it outlines a couple of central tenets that are really important. The first, and I guess that the core here, is that security studies particularly should be focused on looking at conflict and war, particularly not just like war with a capital W, but human violent conflict, and be focused on moving us towards an emancipation of humanity from needing to have that kind of conflict. Remembering, this is in 1991. The Cold War has just ended. Soviet Russia is in decline, but still exists while he's making this speech. The Gulf War has sort of come and gone, but it's been a demonstration of a much more restrained kind of conflict when compared to, for example, the First and Second World Wars. This is, if you go back to our liberal war episode at the same time, where we develop it, where the, we have this rise of liberalism in the liberal world order, which again, through things like democratic peace theory, is supposed to bring about this time of everlast, greater and everlasting peace. So it's in the same vein, although I wouldn't say Ken Booth is strictly a liberalist, he's actually starting, um, or perhaps inadvertently setting off a school that is divergent from liberalism. Critical studies are not liberal necessarily. They can encompass liberal ideas. But he is building on this uh, post-structuralist approach and developing this idea that the core of what we should do is move towards removing the, necess the, the need of conflict from human society across the globe. And that is one of the central tenets of critical school, one of the uniting ideas, at least up until a point. And we'll get to that a little bit later on, but that's one of the, the central tenets that makes it a little bit different, is that it's not accepting that conflict is ine inevitable, but rather challenging researchers and politicians and people everywhere to move towards a future where conflict isn't necessary. It's interesting, I just want to read a couple of points from his article to give you a context of the time he was writing it about. In it, you'll find lines like, um, we talk about states, but many only exist juridically, not as social fact. Many states, in fact, resemble mafia neighborhoods, protection rackets, rather than national societies of our textbooks. So here is a, he's referencing things, for example, the fall of Yugoslavia, um, some emergent nations in Africa, some of the things are going on in the Middle East. At the time, he, he's looking at this particularly post-colonial world without the bifabrication of the Cold War of Soviet capitalist and then the Third Unaligned Movement, and looking at more as a moving towards a um, a much looser association of what is and isn't a country and, and some of the issues arising from organized crime. He also talks about, for example, um, the strength of realism is always said to have been the way it dealt with the central problem of war. Those of us trained as students into the realist tradition have little sc scope for disagreement. By the 1970s, however, the problems with realism as the lens through which the world became obvious, and in Vietnam and elsewhere, it could be seen that realism was not even an uncontroversial guide to action. So this is this is the context that Ken Booth is coming to after a period of research with the backdrop of things like um, Cox's work, also Agamben and Gramsci and Foucault, and looking at some of the conflicts of the past and then the fall of particularly, I really cannot emphasize this enough, the fall of the Cold War is really one of the points that really allows this expansion because people are looking around and going, what do we do next? This is the same time we have Fukuyama's um, The End of History is, is a re response to the same circumstance. 
So that, that's the background to which this starts to happen. And this crisis of thought um, really opens up what can be looked into in terms of IR and security scholars' inquiries. One of the ways we see this happening, of course, is the divergent and emergence of divergent schools. Now, the first of these to probably talk about is one that Alice and I both really enjoy um, and work with, which is the Paris School, which, of course, begins with Foucault, um, who you've heard us talk about before, and then goes on to include people like Agamben. Now, what these schools and what critical theory opened up and started looking into was what actually makes up the term state. Because up until this point, people, realists in particular, were quite content to stick with Weber's original definition of state and then turn that into an entity and work from there. And so Foucault, in particular, starts to look at things like why do we obey? Why do humans in a society obey laws? And more importantly, why do we obey social norms and behavioural expectations when we're not under direct surveillance by the state? And so that leads to his approach of disciplinary power and then later in his life of course he moves into biopower which is where Agamben comes in and Agamben of course is talking about the difference between a human life and the political significance attached to that life and at this point we're really down in the deep end here when we're looking at why is it that certain people are able to have their political significance divorced from their actual biological life by the state and how does that influence the way that we have our security perspectives and how does that influence the way that states react to internal and external security in terms of positioning on this this on the timeline it's really interesting because you can see the foundations of the paris school uh, as austin said in foucault's writing in the 60s and 70s right up to the end of his life he's still working on on these ideas particularly of biopower he really dies before he can finish applying that properly to international relations and then a little bit later, a gambin comes into the works. But then it's sort of, it, it's always a little bit in the backdrop for international relations theory. But in the post-2001 uh, global war on terror environment, there are a lot of policies, uh, particularly uh, targeted killings uh, by drone and otherwise, rendition, uh, and the construction of illegal non-combatants that has caused a revival in the Paris school and brought it much, much more to the fore in the last 15 years than it really ever has been before. Uh, we'll get to how that's influenced criticisms of, of critical security studies a little bit later, because it's actually one of the core points that gets drawn on by some of the, the leading critics of the school. But in the sort of spread of the development of critical, the critical studies of international relations and security studies, this is actually, it's our favorite, but it's actually a much later development in terms of being as, as well fleshed out as it is at the moment. All of this stuff when we're talking about it, it's a very broad net, but it's actually quite thin. There's not really a lot of people working within these fields compared to, for example, the big ones of realism and economics and then liberalism. Which is really fascinating when you realize that the, the actual term bios, the bare life concept, is substantively older than anything we're talking about here because bios and that concept comes from the ancient Greek. Now, what I think is important to raise here is that what distinguishes, one of the things that distinguishes a critical school, regardless of which one, but particularly the Paris school, and realism, for example, is that a realist perspective is about power, right? And all IR is about power. 
but it's more about the application. The realists don't really look into what creates and what what comprises that internal power of a state, particularly on the domestic front. Whereas a critical school, and particularly things like Foucault, what we're, what they're looking at here is how does a state generate and how does a state maintain its internal power? How does it turn a collection of individual human beings into a resource that can be utilized and capitalized on by the state in order to achieve a goal? And I use the term resource actually quite deliberately here because it feeds into the next um, school approach to critical, um, which is the more Marxist approaches, including the Frankfurt School. Yeah, so the Frankfurt School of critical approach uh, is actually slightly separate from uh, CSS and CIR. It predates it. It was a school of, of thought for general critical investigation, which encompassed some international relations and domestic theories like Marxism. Um, the early uh, post-structuralist movement, for example, would, would home themselves in that sort of department. The first critical school per se, or first, sorry, first critical IR or critical security studies school um, is the Welsh school. And that's, um, that took up on in its central tenet that emancipatory realism, this idea that we can look at this, how power moves and how power is used in society and we can see how we can emancipate ourselves from this period of conflict. It's, I guess, the Welsh school is like the, the original flavour Critical security studies, would you say? Yeah, that's where we sort of get the basic tenets from. But one of the things that they push is... The reason why it's emancipatory realism is that they focus on particularly policy reform and direct political engagement. They're advocating for a whole range of ideas. Um, nuclear disarmament's one and a few others where they're focusing they're focusing very much on, on, on deliberately moving towards that emancipatory realist perspective that they're trying to make it happen now after a while what emerges in response to this is the copenhagen school which is still within critical security studies but it's much more of a step back from policy engagement and it starts to pull in more of this philosophical um, approach more understanding uh, the history and how things uh, interact with each other noticeably we have um, barry buzan in this, he talks a lot about human security, particularly, and understanding not from the perspective of states per se, uh, but more the importance of human beings and what makes a, an individual human being or a group of human beings secure, as opposed to what makes a state secure. We also have other ones. Um, De Wilde comes into here, uh, and a few others. Uh, have you worked in, with Copenhagen explicitly, terribly much, or no? I've I haven't done a lot of work with Copenhagen. We're, we're, we're both pretty Parisian in our approach. We're very philosophic, philosophical. To bring this back to the Paris School, then, I guess this is important to look at. This is the, the critical school of security studies. What's the, what's the pointy end of this? What are we critical of? So to go back to Booth in 1991, um, he's critical of, this, of realism, of this um, presumption of coercive state power as being the primary act, action and states as the primary actor in international relations. So it starts there. More recently in CSS and particularly in critical um, security studies, particularly when it looks at terrorism. There's an emphasis on the examining the moral campaigns, the de-emphasis of human narratives and security, and the emphasis of terrorism as an ultimate evil that we must kill at every moment. This, again, ties back to, to liberal war. It ties back to how we talk about biopolitical power. 
It's also very critical of definitions. So one of the big things that comes out of secu critical security studies particularly, and critical IR in the context of the war on terror, the proposition that you can exclude states from being terrorists, and how the broader dialogue about what terrorism is and how we problem solve it serves to actually legitimize what is often perceived as oppressive state policy. So it creates a discourse in the public um, that further politicizes terrorism as, as the ultimate evil, as that social other that only the enemy can do. And so by the same extension, when there are civilian casualties caused by an allied airstrike, it might be collateral damage. But when there are civilian casualties from um, an Iraqi insurgent attack on US forces, it's a terrorist attack. That kind, They look at that kind of change in the language and how that actually legitimizes the use of airstrikes, of invading other countries, um, and tries to be, again, try to get that distance and sort of say, well, what's the difference here? Why why are we doing here? And what does constructing this language actually allow us to do? And that's where critical security studies particularly diverts quite strongly from the conventional schools. The conventional schools are really about the problem. They're about the state. The critical school, however, looks at the state as a gestalt entity. We've used that term in a previous episode. But what it's looking at is not so much what the state does and whether that's legitimate or not. It's about looking at what, how does the state mobilize its constituent population against other sectors of humanity or against other states? And how does the discourse, how does the uh, non-direct power, and how do the norms that within that society shape how we perceive and how we legitimate the actions of states when we wouldn't if it was a different type of actor, which simply isn't covered um, under your realist or your liberalist philosophies. Yeah, it's a way of looking at why it's okay to do this to terrorists, but not okay to do this to a generic criminal, for example. The other thing they talk about, particularly within terrorism, and we're harping on this a bit because this has been really, for both of us, I think, the most effective gateway into looking at asymmetrical conflict and terrorism, certainly has been for me. But one of the points they make, particularly in the post-9-11 world, is how what's been created is a sort of a knowledge industry around terrorism, where you have security companies, engineers, think tanks, researchers, everyone at every layer, capitalizing on government funding that's been given to solve the problem of terrorism. And so what this, even if it's unconscious, what this perpetrates is a substantiation of the problem terrorism in fact existing. It's it's a way of, whenever you're doing research on terrorism from those primary schools, you're starting from the idea that it is real, which is a little indisputable, I guess, that it is a big problem that must be solved. And that's your starting point. Rather than critiquing, how big of a problem is this? What are we spending to solve it versus what are, what is it costing us when an attack goes off? How much does this impact our society when compared to other things? What they're critiquing here, I guess, and I sort of came up with this myself when I was going through the, the show notes and constructing this. I'd never seen this term written down before, but it might might have been, it might be buried in my subconscious, but sort of a, a security terrorism complex as opposed to a military industrial complex. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I, I put it in the show notes. I haven't heard you comment on it yet, Austin. That's the crux of this. When you look at what happens when all these researchers get involved, you know, post 9-11, there's this really snowballing effect where everyone and their dog was suddenly a terrorism expert. Um, and what that led to was a lot of research that, um, missed the mark a little bit or was taken a different way. Since then, it's never got any smaller. It's continued to grow. And what that means is that there are an immense amount of funding, an immense number of researchers all looking into how we solve terrorism. 
and whatever the flavor of the month is within that changes from month to month, obviously. But it, it always assumes that that's there, and it always assumes it's the biggest threat facing our society, despite the fact that you're much, much more likely, from memory, I think it's 26 times more likely to be killed by lightning as an Australian than a terrorist attack on home soil. You're much more likely to be killed by a vending machine, for example. Um, you, you are substantially more likely to be killed, and the actual life, deaths to dollars figure here is substantially more in terms of just the simple road toll. But what the effect of it is, is we're legitimating a level of concern that is actually disproportionate to the level of threat. Because, among other things, it is politically savvy, it's sexy, to be afraid of terrorism, to take obvious outlandish approaches to try and solve terrorism, protect everyone. Where does the line be drawn between a terrorist act and a criminal act? And where, when do we have to say... We're investing too much in trying to harden targets that we could use to save more lives in a non-terrorism area. And that's the crux of what we're talking about here when we talk about discourse. Hospitals is a great example. Or in education or in alleviating any of the um, socioeconomic factors that might lead someone to violent political action. Now, in saying all of this, Austin, of course, you realize we can't complain too loudly because you and I both specialize in this area of study and... Uh, we're both receiving funding because that is our area of study. So this is the other side of the critical studies, though, is, of course, that they do actually feed off to a much lesser extent because their ideas are less sexy and attract a little bit less government funding. But nevertheless, in pushing back against what they see as a problem, they, in fact, are able to do so by grace of the same problem. So it's there's also a little bit of, once you start really digging deeper, this whole construct, including the critical school that pushes back, actually feeds off the same, in this case, resource pool of, of, of funding that is available for anything that has terrorism on the label or anything that has security on the label. That's not to invalidate the school at all. It's just an interesting perspective I think you need to take on why, for example, the critical school has got as big as it has. But, I mean, this all stems down to a psychological phenomena, which is simply that we become more afraid as a society when something happens, a violent act happens that breaks our perception of the social contract, our perception of what's normal. People are much less likely to demand government response and funding and military response to, for example, a landslide or a shark attack. Things that are normal in the normal course of our lives could occur. If you get hit crossing the street by a car, that's a tragedy. And it is a tragedy. But it's not a national security problem because it's part of life and we accept that risk. Terrorism is one of those risks that nobody ever really accepts and people are always, to an extent, surprised when it happens. It is a violation of how we perceive the world and how we perceive our safety and that's why it is so attractive to funders and the like. Mm. It's a disruptor of our basal security. This is something we've talked about in a previous episode. It's easier for us to get locked into these rants because it is our what we study, but if you would like a, a more in-depth discussion of this phenomenon, go watch our episode on terrorism. So, I guess we, we've outlined what it is, and as we said, this is a baseline for a lot of our schools of thought. This episode is more a broad spectrum slice of a bunch of different ideas. We're going to be exploring some of these ideas more in depth later. The next episode we'll be looking at uh, post-colonial studies particularly, which is an, a part of um, 
critical international relations more than it is critical security studies, although there's overlap here. But what are some of the critique of the criticalists here? Because there's, there's been a lot of pushback against this idea from particularly the more conventional schools. One of the, the big pushes um, that I'd like to highlight first is particularly from Hynek and then our old friend David Chandler, um, who pushes back particularly on the Paris School. Now, one of the things the Paris School did in its focusing on the relations of power um, and the constructions, how power sort of moves in society in the Foucauldian sense, is that it moved critical approaches away from that emancipatory doctrine. It, in fact, substantially undermined em emancipation from conflict as a core tenant to the, to, to the point now where a lot of even more mainstream critical researchers don't necessarily fully focus on this, even though it was supposed to be originally a central tenant. Now, personally, I don't think that's a problem, but for Heineck and Chandler, they point out that what this does is simply create an approach that doesn't actually have a central theoretical tenets. What they charge is that, therefore, we have people talking about security studies, but when they remove that emancipation, the emancipatory doctrine, what they become is, is a generic security theorist. They are not aligned to the critical school. It would be like a realist not putting um, rational actor theory and the primacy of the state actor front and foremost. If you don't do those, you are not a realist. You have you may be drawing on ideas from realism, but to be a realist, you must encapsulate the core tenets of realism, as you would with liberalism. And Heineck and Chandler challenge that that's what happened across all of uh, the critical security and IR schools. They don't, they've ceased to become a distinct school unto themselves. You can talk about feminist security studies, you can talk about post-colonial security studies, but he, they reject this idea of critical as the central school. Uh, I don't think that that's necessarily a fair charge. I think this is a natural evolution of ideas, but I'd suggest that calling critical a school in its traditional sense um, is less useful, much the same way realism has become very divergent in its different ideas. I don't know what your thoughts on this are, Austin. No, I agree with you, Alistair. I think it's the result of the fact that we are teaching this to people and academics are having to explain their theories and their approaches to non-academics in terms of policymakers and the like. It is a lot easier to explain one's research, to teach one's research. If it's part of a didactic comparison, there's two sides, critical and conventional. If you can lump yourself in with respected scholars like Foucault or like Jackson, then your research has... Oh, not an artificial, but a pre-made legitimacy that you can bandwagon onto. I don't think it's necessarily an issue that the school has developed past those initial aspects, um, but I think the criticism itself is a aspect of the tribalism that pervades academia. The fact that you and I started this by saying, yes, we're both trained in a, a more critically leaning version of IR from our teachers and our lecturers, but we both take elements of other theories. Because of that, we are, as you say, fence-sitters. The fact that we are fence-sitters, and these comments by Heineck and Chandler particularly, are indicative of the tribalism. I think the tribalism itself is more of an issue in academia. Yeah, I'd agree with that wholeheartedly. And something I accept from Heineck and Chandler is they talk about uh, building a straw man argument. The, the critical schools look at anything that is traditional and say, that is wrong because it is traditional. I would say that it's more of building a straw rand um, but that's just my own personal joke, and no one else is going to find that funny. Uh, but, I mean, I, I got in trouble with our um, early mentor for writing a paper, a student paper, on particularly this divide in security studies, where I compared it to um, the houses Montague and, and Capulet from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, and I ended it 
with the line. Both sides share many commonalities in their approaches and even in their definitions. Both sides bring valuable perspectives and criticisms to the discourse, in this case I was looking at terrorism. However, it is by their insistence on their differences that a divide has rapidly grown, one that now threatens both the criticalist ideal of inclusiveness and the conventionalist insistence of a straw man argument. Both sides are falling on their own accusations to the benefit of neither. The bardic quote preceding this essay serves not as a diagnosis, but poetic warning. If this battle of two ivory towers goes on unchecked, what studious hands will make their own studies unclean? Now, I got in a lot of trouble for that. I was handed the paper and said that I hadn't been marked down for it, but to never do it again. I, I was quite proud of it. I thought that that was uh, quite well written, but uh, I still think it's quite well written. But I can understand how someone in one band camp or the other would look at that and this is why I started with both sides don't like us. That's true. Um, we have seemed to have irritated some of the tribes. I think the other main criticism of, of Critical before we end the episode would have to be that, and this comes from the conventional side uh, quite regularly, that it is a version of what we're looking at to look at this and say IR should be a science. So it's like a political science approach to either IR or security studies. And the problem there is that look at people like Foucault, like a gammon, like Gramsci with his hegemony argument. These are all philosophers, not necessarily political scientists. And when they bring their philosophical arguments, when they bring in their psychology for some aspects into our little sandpit of political science, the conventional school may has argued in the past that they're diluting the academic integrity and the rigorousness of analysis because it's moving away from that hard political science approach. Now, again, I don't think there's any issue with that necessarily, but it is important to raise that that is a major criticism that has been leveled against the critical schools. It's very hard to put numbers on philosophy. It also makes, I think, particularly at an undergraduate level, getting into critical studies sometimes a very difficult thing to do because if you're raised in a tradition at a senior high school level of looking at um, political science as a hard science, making that jump to philosophy, particularly if you are thrown in without having done a philosophy unit, really difficult. Um, succeeding in philosophy or even being able to think in a, in a philosophical manner is a very different thing to anything that is really taught in high school. And so I think that particularly for all our undergraduate students out there who are listening and think that they might want to approach this, I would seriously recommend taking a basic introduction to philosophy unit anywhere along in your studies. I mean, even if you're not looking at the critical schools, there is a way of thinking and a way of approaching a problem that is very different in philosophy than it is in any other ways. But it, it can be used and applied to all sorts of problems. So this is very deep and, and we're scratching the surface here and I'm not, it's not so much scratching the surface but surface but looking over the abyss and it gets very deep very quickly so it's worth having the basic skills to be able to think along these ways if only to stay sane um anyone who reads original translated Foucault will know exactly what I'm talking about here you need to be sort of able to put your mind on hold for a little bit and rejig how you think to really approach this stuff but beyond simply another way of thinking, what we always come back to in these episodes and in, in studying IR and security studies comes back to the core principle of IR, which is power. No matter which school you look at, what we're dealing with at the end of the day is power. Who has it, how they use it, why they have it, why it's legitimate, however you want to look at it. But 
the one school of thought, the one aspect of our you know, academic society that has always been focused on power and structures of that power is philosophy. So as an IR scholar, particularly as a young undergraduate, you it's hard to go wrong reading some of these philosophers just for their understanding of power. I mean, if look at it, Hobbes, Kant, Lukes, Gramsci, Foucault, the one thing that all of these people have in common is that as philosophers, they contributed a theory of power which has been then used in IR. Mm. And this is true of liberalism um, and true of uh, realism as well. And we started both of our episodes on those highlighting the philosophical origins in the Enlightenment period. The, again, these are philosophers, not political scientists. Um, we're really running out of time here, so I guess there's the ultimate question to end on, which I used when we were doing our realism episode, so I'm going to make us turn around on a dime here and, and use it again. Are we in the critical school anymore, Austin? Uh, do, would you consider yourself both a realist and a criticalist? Or one or the other? Where do you stand? Where, where would What pigeonhole would you home your particular pigeon? Oh, my pigeon's going to be cold, Alistair. I don't think that we really fit within any of these schools, and I don't think there's a problem there. I think the reason we have these schools is much more to do with teaching undergrads, teaching people who have just entered IR about the different ways of thinking. And again, once you find your way of thinking, it becomes your own. And you might draw on schools and draw on individuals and papers. But the point of being an academic, and this is easy to lose among all the tribalism, the reason we are academics, the reason we train academics, is because you have to be able to think for yourself. And you have to be able to look at a problem and come at it from a new angle and a, a unique perspective. And so I think to do that, you have to get out of the pigeonhole. And I would think that, I would hope, and this is a bit of blowing my own trumpet here, that I've managed to take aspects from various theories into my own approach. And that's where I see myself. So I am a proud, dirty, rotten fence-sitter. Well, I'll second that. Here's to the fence-sitters. Now, given you have a flight in a little over two hours, I think we better call the episode here. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this introduction to critical theory. If you have any thoughts, comments, or feedback, we'd love for you to start your own discussion, either in the comments section below or on our subreddit. Those links, as well as to our show notes and Patreon page, can be found in the doobly-doo below. We'd also like to take a moment to really thank our patrons. It's only with their support that we've been able to run the show for now over a year, and if you've ever thought of supporting us, now would be a great time. It only takes the cost of a cup of coffee an episode, and, and we only charge our patrons when we actually put out content. So you know you're supporting the show, and not a monthly bill. Next episode, which will be somewhat delayed, we'll dive a little deeper into one subgenre of the critical school, that of post-colonialism, and explore its perspective on the modern world. Until then, thank you all for listening, and good night. <laughs>